often the small states involved can engage with these infrastructure investments and they have ways in which they can hold out hard bargains. Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast for the foreign policy and global development communities and anyone who wants a deeper understanding of what is driving events in the world today. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg. I am a veteran international affairs journalist and the editor of UN Dispatch. Enjoy the show. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. The study and analysis of great power competition is very much in vogue in foreign policy circles, and understandably so. The rise of China, the actions of Russia, and America's approach to geopolitics are indeed setting the conditions in which some big global shifts are playing out. But that does not mean one should ignore the role that small states are playing in international politics. And indeed, if you overlook small states, you are missing a complete picture of international relations today. My guest, Tom Long, is author of the book a Small State's Guide to Influence in World Politics. The book uses a number of case studies to show how smaller states have successfully shaped international affairs to their advantage. And in so doing, the book makes the case for focusing the study of international relations beyond simply the actions of great powers. Tom Long is Associate Professor of International Relations at the University of Warwick we kick off discussing what we mean by small states. We then spend most of the conversation doing something of world tour. Tom Long cites examples from different regions in which small states have been particularly impactful. Now here is Tom Long of the University of Warwick and author of the book, A Small State's Guide to Influence in World Politics. So what I appreciate about your work is how it offers a corrective to an almost singular focus we're seeing right now in foreign policy circles around great power competition. It seems that a lot of policy right now is viewed through the lens of great power politics, but you argue that we should not ignore the impact of small states on international relations. Why is that? Well, I think there are a few different reasons, but one of the most important reasons to sort of shift or to question that vantage point is that when we read conflicts through the lens of great powers and the interests of great powers, we get a lot of things wrong about why smaller states are doing what they're doing 
and also about the dynamics of asymmetrical relations themselves, that is, relationships that are characterized by wide disparities of power. To take the most salient example, if we think about the conflict, the war in Ukraine, as has often been read from the United States and elsewhere as being sort of a contest between the United States and Russia, really a battle about NATO expansion. I think we miss a lot of the dynamics of that conflict that are situated in the asymmetries of the Russia-Ukraine relationship. Sources of the conflict and reasons why Ukraine fared so much better in the early stages of that conflict than most people expected. So, you know, that's one reason is that if we really just focus on great powers and their interests, we misread the dynamics of a lot of international relationships. There's one other thing that I would point to. I think small states can sometimes be thought of as canaries in the coal mine for all sorts of international problems. Perhaps the most salient example that has been pointed to in research on small states is small states as canaries in the coal mine regarding climate change. Of course, it was small states that were amongst the first to sound the alarm on climate change in in an international political perspective, um, with small island states in particular facing dramatic and existential risks from climate change. And small states have been really active in putting ambitious climate change targets on the agenda. But if we think of other sorts of international challenges, small states can also give us kind of an early warning because of their particular vantage point on international relations. So if you think about the erosion of certain norms or aspects of what's thought of as liberal international order or the overreach of great powers, Well, small states have a lot at stake in those questions, and they're very sensitive to things like the erosion of norms of territorial integrity, the erosion of norms of what's sometimes called extantism. That is, once a state exists, it continues to exist, because states that can't defend themselves militarily rely quite heavily on the propagation of those norms and at least some adherence to those norms for their survival and their ability to thrive. I wanted to stick with the two examples you cited, Ukraine and climate change. And on climate change, it really is interesting to see how the association of small island states, these are like a group of just tiny countries like Kiribati and Nauru that have emerged as a moral voice in the climate change debate because you know it's an existential issue in the very near term for them and because of that you know at least covering the united nations i've seen a dynamic in which the broader ngo community and the civil society movements and progressives more generally around the world have like rallied around small island states in climate change negotiations which allows them to bat far above their weight in really interesting ways. Yeah, I think that's right. And small state leaders have often been very creative in leveraging some of those relationships with NGOs 
and with other states that share more ambitious climate goals, like some of the European states, to push for targets like 1.5, and under the phrase 1.5 to stay alive, it's one of the phrases that's been advanced by this grouping of largely Caribbean and Pacific Island states working in concert. And they've innovated in terms of how they engage with international politics. And one thing that I think is easy to forget from the perspective of larger and even medium states about small states is that they often confront really stark resource limitations when you think about the size of their foreign service or the number of diplomats that they're able to have around the world or even at really key international organizations like the United Nations, they don't have enough diplomats to cover all of the meetings that are happening in order to have strong bilateral relationships in all of the key partners where they would like to. And so they have to figure out ways in which they can cooperate. And the Alliance of Small Island States has been really effective in doing that from very early on by establishing sort of joint offices at the UN working with interested NGOs to enhance their own diplomatic clout. We've seen all kinds of innovations here where they realize that they might be much smaller than some of the largest admitters, but they're not alone. And there are some other actors in the international system who are really committed to the same sorts of goals. And so they've gone about that in interesting ways. One example that another scholar of small states, Jack Corbett, has written about is the way in which small states turned to the International Maritime Organization, which is not generally particularly uh, sexy body in international politics. It's not an organization that gets a lot of headlines, but they turned to that as a place where they could chip away at emissions, where they could exercise greater influence than you might think, because representation there was based on the places that small states occupied in flag registries. And a lot of small states have a lot of shipping companies flagged in them, right? That's one of the unorthodox ways that small states have tried to gain some income. And they used that over-representation in the IMO to develop greater voice there than anyone might have expected. Fascinating. So it's almost like their size compels them to act in unique and innovative ways to achieve their foreign policy and international goals. On Ukraine, I'm curious to learn from you what key small state dynamics you consider are impactful in this conflict. I mean, since Russia's invasion of Ukraine, like one small state I can think of that is directly impacted is Moldova. We've done episodes on this podcast on the impact of Russia's invasion of Ukraine in Moldova, but Moldova doesn't seem to be a key actor in influencing events in Ukraine. Are there other small states around the world that you see are being impactful on the Ukraine crisis in any meaningful way? There are, but I I want to offer a bit of an explanation of, I guess, what I want to point to there, which is that when I'm talking about small states or in my book and some of my other work on small states, 
I'm using the term small states, but I'm using it in a different way than it's often used in international institutions, which is as sometimes a category of self-identification or sometimes a category based on certain population thresholds. And what I'm interested in more than thinking about small states as a category is thinking about the dynamics of asymmetrical relationships. So even when we're looking at Ukraine and Russia, Ukraine is not a small state by traditional definitions, by population, by territory. It's a very big country. But when you look at its relations with Russia, they're characteristic of the relations of asymmetrical relations. And so it's kind of functions in the as a small state in that relationship. And in that sense, you know, I think one of the things that Ukraine did that is typical of successes of weaker parties in asymmetrical relationships is to deploy its own network of international relationships to develop kind of additional sources of power beyond what it itself can manage and leverage. So it's leveraging its international relationships as a way to exercise greater influence, or in this case, to increase its capacities for self-defense. But if we think about other small states, maybe more traditionally defined and their role in this conflict, I think you can certainly look at the Baltic countries for example, as a prominent example where they see their own interests strongly reflected in the war in Ukraine. We can see that in their recent and very strong reaction to the comments of a Chinese diplomat that seemed to question their territorial integrity, to question their sovereignty. So you're referring to the Chinese ambassador to France who said essentially that he does not believe that former Soviet states are indeed independent countries, and the Baltic countries, who are obviously independent countries, took that rather badly. That's right. And then they spurred a strong diplomatic reaction within Europe, within France, and that more or less led China to walk back those comments. But we have also seen them instigating, even before the Russian invasion of Ukraine and even before the Russian invasion of Crimea, we have seen the Baltic states pushing within NATO or in their bilateral relations with the UK and with the US for much stronger forward defense positions vis-a-vis Russia. I think you know now there are examples where they are behind the scenes pushing within NATO for greater and faster deployment of military hardware to Ukraine. So there we have a combination of these small states using their own resources to help Ukraine, but perhaps more impactfully, they are using their relationships with European capitals, with Washington, to try to shape the dynamics of that conflict. I'd love to do something of like a world tour with you. I think we just got Europe covered to a certain extent of ways in which small states are able to meaningfully impact international politics, either within their region or globally. So maybe let's go to Latin America. Is there a good example in Latin America that is particularly illustrative of this dynamic around small states' ability to wield power above their weight? There are certainly examples. You know, in the book, what I tried to do is 
to move away a little bit from saying, well, this small state, small state X is really influential and they do a good job across all of these different issue areas. Because often I think that's not quite how it works or it's not always the most helpful way to analyze small states. I think we really have to think about small states goals very contextually. That is, what is a small state trying to achieve in a particular relationship at a particular moment? And that's where I think we can see a little bit more clearly signs of small state influence. It can be hard to do that writ large. You know, you can look at a small state in Latin America or a state that certainly punches above its weight, like Cuba at certain times, and look at the way that Cuba has leveraged its strong revolutionary government, its message that resonated in the Cold War, in particular with different actors, to exercise influence that one would not have expected for a state of Cuba's size. But in lots of other ways, one can look at Cuba and say, well, this is not a country that has been successful. So you really have to kind of contextualize that influence. I think that one example that sticks out to me is the way that Panama during the 1970s used their network of international relationships and their very unique possession of the Panama Canal to negotiate with the United States over the conditions of the return of the canal. So Panama did some really innovative things like pressing for a UN Security Council meeting to be held in Panama, where it went on to embarrass the United States and Henry Kissinger in some ways. This was 50 years ago, almost exactly. And from there, they were able to reshape the U.S. position in ways that eventually would lead to the canal being returned to Panama. And that's a story that's normally told in a very different way, where the focus is on the United States and on Carter coming into the presidency and wanting to change the U.S. relationship with Latin America. And that's all true. But if we don't understand how that issue got onto Carter's agenda, which had a lot to do with Panama and its international positioning, then I think we've missed a big part of how small states can gain influence. In the Middle East and North Africa, are there any good more contemporary examples of small states wielding power or achieving their objectives against asymmetrical opponents that you might explain? I think one can look at, sort of as a broad example, look at Qatar and the ways in which it has used its considerable revenues, coming mostly from hydrocarbons, right? The way that it has used those to develop a much broader type of influence. And then, of course, that brought about some significant backlash, led by Saudi Arabia in particular within the GCC, the Gulf Cooperation Council. You're referring, though, specifically to Qatar's investment in creation of Al Jazeera as like the dominant media voice in the Middle East for a long time. Well, certainly, you know, I think that's one example where you have that investment in a dominant media voice that allows a very small country to exercise outsized influence. But it's not just that, you know, you can see the relationships that they've built with international universities as a way of upscaling themselves. The World Cup, of course, while there was certainly plenty of criticism going along with that, they also were able to reposition themselves in a way that is not common for a state of that size. And I think in a way that worked pretty effectively to the benefit of ruling parties, right? 
So I would not go so far when I talk about small states to say that this sort of influence or successes of small states are necessarily to the benefit of everyone in that small state. But I think you can look at the ways in which these successes enhance the position of ruling elites there, and they've been quite successful in that sense. And in Africa, are there any small states' foreign policy that you find particularly intriguing right now? One example that I talk about in the book and that I think is really interesting is the way in which Rwanda emerged as a regionally influential state, but also a state that managed to exercise quite a lot of leeway and influence vis-a-vis donors in the wake of the genocide. So as the government that comes into power after the genocide under Paul Kagame and the Rwandan Patriotic Front, they're able to do something that many countries that rely heavily on foreign aid could not do, which is to more or less control where that aid goes into what sorts of projects and to steer aid for the purposes of consolidating the state basically. You can find counterexamples in which small states lose control of aid flows and it ends up hollowing out the state and they struggle to coordinate where aid goes. The Rwandans, partially through really astute management of narratives around the genocide and through their engagement with U.S. and U.K. leaders in particular who felt guilt about the genocide, were able to establish very different kinds of relationships with international donors. And that's led to the consolidation of of a much stronger government there that has maintained its position despite very strong criticisms of its human rights record, of its lack of commitment to democracy, a lot of the kinds of values that the U.S. and the U.K. were professing at that moment. But despite those criticisms, the aid, for the most part, kept Mm -hmm. on flowing for crucial years that allowed the RPF to consolidate its position in Rwanda and in the region. And the RPF is the Rwandan Patriotic Front, the party of Paul Kagame. And you're saying it's Paul Kagame's strength that is enabling him to, say, foment an insurgency in Eastern Democratic Republic of Congo in the form of the M23 movement, which is wreaking havoc in Eastern Congo right now. And that you know, it seems to be a very good example of Rwanda, a very small state, punching above its weight for worse in this case, rather than better, to pursue its foreign policy goals in a much larger neighboring country. Yeah, I mean, I think you can go back to pretty early phases of the consolidation of the RPF government, and you see the ways in which a hierarchical, consolidated core of leadership is able to establish those sorts of relationships, and that still is there at the core of this project. And once you have that relatively strong, consolidated core in a context in which it's able to monopolize or to have outsized control over resources, it's able to pursue these different projects. It's able to throw its weight around the region in different ways that it sees as its interest. This is not in the interest of all involved. Is there any particular country or any particular asymmetrical relationship right now that you as a researcher find particularly interesting that we in the broader community ought to be paying more attention to? 
Yeah. But really any other like interesting, like asymmetrical dynamic you just find particularly interesting. So I think one area where thinking from the perspective of small states and through asymmetrical relationships is really important, but maybe not being done enough is in the context of China's Belt and Road Initiative. You know, so when there's discussion of small states in the Belt and Road Initiative, it's often has to do with debt traps or with concerns that China is taking advantage of these small countries. But I think once we dig into these relationships, we can find lots of cases where it's the small states kind of pulling for this assistance and not necessarily just the case of China pushing. So, I mean, I think if we were to reevaluate some of those dealings with the Belt and Road Initiative with a focus on asymmetries, with a focus on the perspectives of small states and what they are trying to achieve, instead of reading that through the perspective of Chinese foreign policy or particularly of U.S.-China competition, we'll see something very different. That is, we'll see small states or the governments of small states that are pursuing particular goals, often having to do, of course, with upgrading infrastructure, but are doing so usually with eyes open about a balance of relationships. That is, thinking about the best ways to balance the various actors with strong stakes in the region now. So, I mean, I think this is one area that over and over, it's really important to look at the ways that these relationships play out in a bit more of of a nuanced sense. Often, the small states involved can engage with these infrastructure investments, and they have ways in which they can hold out hard bargains with China. It's not just sort of a case of capitulation. That's fascinating because like the dominant media narrative, at least, is that It views this as a competition between China and the United States. But if you want a better perspective, a more nuanced understanding of these projects in like a more discreet way, view them through the perspective of the small state that's engaging with China proactively. They're not being forced to do this. That's right. And, you know, those small states and their leadership are aware of the increasing competition and they're spending a lot of time thinking about the risks and also the possible opportunities or benefits created by that competition. So we should expect to see a lot of variation. Some cases in which small states do well by that matrix of relationships of growing competition and some in which they might overplay their hand. One point that I I try to make over and over in the book is that there are different configurations of conditions that are going to lead small states to be more or less successful in certain attempts to gain influence or in the pursuit of certain goals. But there still is repeatedly a factor in which agency matters, good leadership matters, diagnosing properly the situation that the state faces matters. And so it's a combination of the ways in which leadership engage and the conditions that they face, which are sometimes favorable and sometimes much less so. Tom, we'll have to leave it there. Thank you so much for your time. This was great. Thank you, Mark. Thank you for listening to Global Dispatches. Our show is produced by me, Mark Leon Goldberg, and edited and mixed by Levi Sharp. 
If you have questions or comments, please email us using the contact button on globaldispatchespodcast.com. Before you go, do take a moment to show your support for the show by becoming a premium subscriber. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, you can do so with a couple taps of your thumb. If you're listening elsewhere, you can go to patreon.com slash global dispatches. We rely on support from listeners to continue to do what we do far into the future. And by becoming a premium subscriber, you will unlock access to our entire archive of hundreds and hundreds of episodes. Please rate or review the show on Apple Podcasts. <laughs>